is Andrew Brewer. I'm with Northwest Area Health Education Center, and this is the podcast known as Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina. Today, I have my special guest, Dr. Corey Richardson, appearing for the second time, this time virtually. Um, uh, and he is the Director of Integrated Care of Greater Hickory. And we're going to have a chat today about all kinds of things, um, one of which is going to be uh, uh, addiction treatment in the time of COVID. We're not going to give away his talk that he's having on the 23rd of September through Northwest AHAC, um, but we're going to discuss some of those things. So welcome, Corey. Hey, thank you for having me again. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, we had a great conversation last time, and and that was pre-COVID, and and so uh, I'll just start out. You know, I'd be remiss not to just... Go ahead and address the elephant in the room. You know, how has COVID-19 affected uh, integrated care and and the things that y'all are doing? We did not see this coming. Nobody could. It was just sideswiping us. But the idea for us was we had to find new ways to deliver essential care. And so in this social distancing, in the beginning of the crisis, there was a lot of unknowns. So we really did prepare for the very worst when it came to transmission. And we had set down, even before there were guidelines from CDC and guidelines from North Carolina DHHS, we had to really do whatever we could to get any information coming out of the World Health Organization and figure out how we could continue to deliver care in in the interim um, until some more information came out. And so it was a challenge to really look at some of the telehealth stuff that we had begun with our satellites already. We had done some telehealth through medical uh, where there was less need for that kind of one-on-one engagement. We felt comfortable providing MAT through a telehealth as long as there was a nurse with the patient on that satellite. But when it came to the counseling, we had never really wanted to do telehealth because we that there was a tighter level of engagement, the therapeutic alliance would be stronger if you were there in the room looking at each other, pick, picking up on a lot of other features uh, while they were there, stuff like the you know, smell of the breath, twitching of the hands, eye contact. And it was just easier to keep somebody's attention. You know, and keep in mind, addiction is a brain disease. And it takes a long time for the brain to start to recalibrate itself. And so focusing, even for anybody in today's new world, I think they said six seconds, you know, for the person who's been struggling for decades with addiction, it's very, very difficult to really engage. And so we had really uh, put that off as a philosophy uh, for us until this happened. And then we had to recalibrate. Keep in mind, we had a lot of people that were homeless, people that were in tent camps, Uh, people that were at the Salvation Army. And so we had to be very creative about bringing tablets to the tent camp so we could do telehealth. We had to be very creative when people came into our sites, how to protect our staff and other patients from transmission. So early on, we started really putting these in place. And and with the Northwest AHEC talk that I'm going to give next week, it's on the 23rd at 9 a.m., go into more detail about how we did that practically, but not so much a deep science COVID-19 talk, but really in the health crisis, when you have it, whether it's going to be maybe not this time it's COVID, maybe next time it's going to be something else when it comes to infection, an earthquake, you know, wide power outage, whatever the, the crisis is, we have to be able to do 
use the newer technologies that are available. And then we have to rely also on some older technologies, like old outreach skills, old types of things, going out right where they are to reach them and and, and do that kind of thing, which is um, kind of interesting. We're, many providers are just used to people showing up in their lobby, but that doesn't always work. We had to really make an effort for all of our staff to go wherever they were whether they were whether there was billing apparatus in place or not, we had to make sure people still got the care they needed. Yeah, and so tell me more about how you know the services need uh, increased or decreased, or or you know how how was how did you uh, measure uh, the 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 need uh, when all this hit? I mean, did it you know what all the anecdotal evidence I've seen. To suggest that there's been a greater need for, you know, uh, counseling and and uh, addiction management and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's been kind of a mixed bag, and I don't think we're going to have the data that we want anytime real real soon. Um, while some people had read some uh, data that said that overdose, I was looking at some states where overdose rates were going down, but I think that maybe cause of death might have shifted. And so I, I don't think we have any real hard data about the change in the rate of overdose deaths. Um, I do know that retention for our agency was very, very hard, that people were relapsing because they weren't able to do some of the social interventions that we had taught them, AA, NA, in-person groups where they had really tight connections with their group, in-person individual counseling where they had really tight connections with that person, where they were really focused for that full-time because counseling as a behavioral health science really is a brain function. And if you don't get a sufficient amount of time and a quality of care, it's kind of like getting really bad drugs uh, written by a provider. It's not going to work. And so we were having a hard time with retention. And we were having a hard time identifying new cases that needed help and keeping them in, in services as well. Um Funding streams initially were very hard, and we were very fortunate to have in advance lines of credit that we could draw upon until other funding was available. We had some active uh, uh, lines of payment. We had some funding from the federal government like SAMHSA that uh, went outside of like Blue Cross Blue Shield and Medicaid, where you didn't have some telehealth billing in place like Medicare. If you didn't have that billing, you really can't send out a service until they gave you the okay to send out a bill the old claim way or they had a new code you could use so we really had financially had to have uh lines of credit and finances in place to kind of carry us over as well so there's some of those things but retention was hard uh we saw a lot of people relapsing that we didn't anticipate relapsing and some of that had to do with loss of employment loss of insurance and then all that you know feelings of isolation yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I don't struggle with any particular thing, and I, I felt isolated and felt cut off and and just crying out for social connection. So I can imagine someone who it, it was true for our staff as well. Uh, our staff were feeling extremely fearful of transmission of disease, extremely isolated because while we were out there working in the field in what we felt might be very high-risk situations and tents and in offices where people were coming and going, 
Uh, they weren't able to do their own regular family stuff. They weren't able to do their own recovery stuff and their own wellness stuff that they do. Hobbies, you know, that were you the people were cut off, vacations were shut down. And so for our own agency uh, and our close partners, we are we also offer certified RAP, which is wellness recovery action planning, where we met for 20 week with 20 different days. We would meet after work with an hour-long session about trying to determine what we needed to continue to do as a group with our close partners in, in a classroom setting, a virtual classroom setting, to develop RAP plans. Even those people who had done RAP years ago or had or even people who had taught RAP really felt like they wanted to be connected to redo a RAP session, a RAP class in the time of COVID. And I'll talk a little bit about that as well um, next week. But it, that's an interesting idea is that RAP classes that were generally done in person were able to be done in virtually. And like well, a lot of people who don't have addiction or don't have mental illness, we still need wellness in extreme crisis. <laughs> yeah, that's that's important. I mean, I know physical activity so so important for my for my mental health as well. Uh, mental wellness and everything so it's just uh you know it's a holistic approach to social connection you have to take what you're used to and you had to find new stuff and what we did with our staff well, we had to decide we need to find it now you know we we need we could tell people needed that now and so yeah. in that training we were identifying well if you can't go to the state park right now for whatever reasons what can you do that's going to be okay like walking or biking you know, by yourself or our gardening and other things that you could do, painting, old hobbies, music, uh, AA and NA meetings online. We had to really identify that quickly for people. And they were able to take it as clinicians and staff. And they were able to also carry that over as interventions to those people that they are working for in their counseling sessions. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. You had a recent virtual uh, judicial judicial forum with senator tillis can you tell tell us about that and all the things that came out about that absolutely and thank you for uh asking uh seth williford is the attache or the legislative assistant who helps uh, senator tillis uh craft law and read law for, for votes and he was uh that that staffer that was with us for the tillis judicial forum and we were able to really identify evidence-based interventions outside the norm but that really are essential um so we looked at lead program law enforcement assisted diversion and that's when people are arrested and we got hickory uh, police department who has been instrumental in catawba county and all our little townships uh and they're doing some work themselves some statistical an analysis of their work through duke um they were able to really talk about the lead program and that's where you arrest somebody for doing some type of minor infraction that would normally end up in jail like shoplifting and then place them in a treatment facility on the proviso that they stay they they can avoid jail and they can avoid a conviction mm -hmm. um so there's a real incentive there and we know that a lot of this symptomatology of addiction is really crime a lot of the behavior that happens when people are quote-unquote high when they're under the influence is criminal activity either to support a habit or consequence of being high um, because they're not in their right mind and so uh lead has been a, a very essential part of us moving forward with identifying uh through referrals people that would be good for our program 
And we get referrals like that from DSS and probation and parole. But this is a way, because once you got another arrest, employment is that much more difficult for you. Um, the other types of intervention we're looking at were housing. Not all housing is the same. Some housing is going to be transitional housing. It means you come right out of detox. You might need some immediate housing. Well, sometimes in a shelter, uh, there might be some active drug use or people that are using throughout the day, but not bringing the drugs into the shelter. Well, transitional housing for us is a program-based uh, uh, housing like sober living. We used to call sober living. And so we were able to support some sober living in Lincoln County through a uh, grant, uh, some funding, yearly funding through uh, Lincoln County. And we, and a lot of that has to do with the jail. We had a proviso that you had recent arrest in Lincoln County's jail. Let's keep you out of jail by finding you housing in our transitional housing. If you participated with the treatment, you might ask, well, they don't have money for treatment. We have a federal fund uh, in Lincoln County and in Gaston County for medication-assisted recovery with counseling, and that includes peer support, transportation, counseling, and medical visits, uh, and that's a federal fund, but we also have some state funds as well, and that's a, as opposed to uh, permanent housing. So we were working with HUD, that's uh, the Regional Housing Authority and Western Piedmont Council of Government here in Catawba County uh, about some permanent HUD-funded housing, that if you were somebody who had substance use disorder or behavioral health problem, and you were hard to house and had demonstrated difficulty maintaining housing, we were going to give you some supportive housing uh, in, with treatment. So you have, you're have in treatment with us, HUD-funded housing, and we bought an apartment complex. So we have a duplex for transitional housing for men and women, which had eight units. And then we had uh, permanent housing, a HUD uh, apartment building for 12 uh, persons. And so uh, if you were stable in housing, that would be a really good opportunity. And this includes shared living so mm -hmm. that you're surrounded by other people who are also in recovery, who are also in treatment, and you're all working well together. You all go to meetings together. And a lot of these people are disabled uh, because of behavioral health issues. And so they, they really do fit a hard to house population that end up periodically for, you know, uh, out in the streets, homeless. Mm -hmm. And when you're homeless, it's hard to really maintain your behavioral health meds. It's hard to maintain your recovery. And so that's a, an important intervention. And this is one of those interventions for treatment planning that we always look at. What's your environment? If your environment is in a tent or you're trying to find somebody you can sleep with in a tent, it's really hard to maintain your recovery. And that means your recovery, mental illness, and you're also substance abuse. And there's a lot of overlap there with a lot of our population co-occurring. And so yeah. housing is a very important part of, of these interventions, but people aren't being creative. They just simply say, go to the shelter. They don't care if there's use at the shelter. They don't care if people are using all day, getting kicked out of their own home. And if it's snowing or raining, but you got to get out of the shelter, that's difficult. These are houses and these are, these are homes that are theirs. And, and we, that's one of the things we really do emphasize is while we own these properties and we pay the mortgage on these properties, we consider these properties owned by the people that live there and mm -hmm. they treat them as such. They truly do, whether it's a, a transitional housing fund that we've secured through the county or whether it's through HUD funding. Still, if you it's their housing and they and they, they've improved the quality of these properties just by living there. 
Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's so important to have safety and comfort and a sense of ownership. So you want to help take care of your environment, too. Um, what is the uh, current demand and supply? I mean, it sounds, you know, it doesn't seem like a large number of house, houses that in, in places that you have. I mean, is, is there a, a turnover? Is there a wait list? How is that all that work? Oh, well, right now we do have availability in our programs. Um, but available houses like this are very different. That recovery-oriented environments, that's what we're talking about. And we don't mean kind of a halfway house in a very unsafe part of the community where there's a lot, like six guys in a room. You know, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about true living where you have your own room, you share a kitchen, you might share a living room, and they're not, people aren't stacked on each other and they're clean. They've got nice security cameras so that you feel safe. You've got transportation available to and from meetings. If you find employment, we'll help you with that transportation, court appointments, uh, treatment centers. and But you're you're also in treatment. All the persons that we're talking about that are how, hard to house or new in recovery, um, they're all in treatment. They're guided by treatment. A lot of halfway houses mean you're coming out of prison or you're just homeless and you need to find a kind of a place. But there's no real evidence-based treatment plan that's there guiding your care. And so we have medical doctors and PAs and licensed counselors and licensed therapists that do that kind of treatment planning and guide you that way. Yeah, that's great. Now, you've been active uh, with Northwest AHEC um, recording and some virtual uh, instructions. Um, I mean, in instructions, some, some, some courses regarding uh, addiction medicine treatment and, and special populations uh mat uh, a lot of different things um you know and we appreciate all that and people can find those on our website um and and take them on demand and at their own pace um have, what what have you discovered or learned in, through that process uh well you know we did the lunch at Eric blessed to be able to come down to to wake forest and teach there uh, about integrated care and uh, the lunch and learn series we did in our area for through four three different hospitals and hospice uh, and so uh, it's been that was a wonderful experience and I love that now these on-demand modules from some of those earlier lecture series are going to be available when it comes to evidence-based practice but like you said we we added two at least I added two, and there's some others that were added it, it, when we were devising these modules, these on-demand modules. And mine was about special populations, and also the uh, the COVID talk that we're talking about now is how can we kind of like what we did with integrated care when we were when we were looking at how you take a primary care setting and you infuse it with behavioral health interventions, and very often you're going to have uh, a need for something a lot more practical. Practical information, how do I do that? How do I add that? Give me some of that information. And so when it came to Northwest AHEC and giving some of those earlier talks on integrated care, creating your PCMH, your patient-centered medical home, um, I remember the talks uh, being very practical. People asked me, how did you bill for this? How did you, how did you in, include this behavioral intervention and still get paid for it? And that's what I like, uh, Northwest, Northwest AHEC, when they their practice oriented care you know kind of uh, uh, program 
allows people to really, and I think that's what they're going to get from these modules. Uh, they're science-based, obviously evidence-based, but there's a lot of practical information when you're trying to improve your own practice or your own agency. That's great. Now, um, we talk a little bit more about the uh, upcoming live webinar that you're going to do next week, um, and you can find out about that on our website at northwestahec.org. Um, you mentioned uh, something about um, Suboxone making our drug crisis work. Either re uh, was it called uh, redirecting or uh, diversion? I call it diversion. Diversion, yes. And I've heard this kind of diversion. It unlike diverting them from jail. This is kind of taking. A, they're they're writing for the patient, but they end up diverting onto the streets or they're misused. Or sometimes you're prescribing it to somebody that doesn't need it because they're going to sell it. Um, the the thing about that I've seen prior to COVID was that there were and there was starting to be in North Carolina and across the country an infusion of these suboxone clinics that reminded me of the pill mills that got us in this mess. And there was a lot of telehealth and mail your urine in and leave your urine over there and all this kind of stuff. And it set up a scenario where now Suboxone is the number one illicit drug on the street. Keep in mind, that's crazy. And so while you have Suboxone being an illicit drug, misused for, for other reasons, but used to prevent withdrawal so that people who are addicted now are using meth again in larger and larger numbers. In a lot of our, our rural areas, we see a resurgence of meth or we see Suboxone being used to bridge between heroin highs. I don't have heroin, I don't have pills, I need just something small and find something. And so what we found during COVID is that while this, you know, CMS and while private insurance and while our MCOs, our managed care organizations by the state, opened up avenues to deliver care in new ways for social distancing to continue to provide care. If somebody had a cough and a fever and then we were gonna presume they had COVID, but they still needed their medication, that kind of avenue for treating people during COVID also set up a scenario where people were actively using and, and not getting the treatment that they needed, but they're still getting the medication assisted treatment or they didn't have the disease, but they wanted to secure medication for sales. And so I my problem is Evidence-based care, quality care, allows people to use the medication the right way to stabilize people, bring them into early abstinence, move from abstinence into recovery so that we get some behavioral changes, right? And mm -hmm. then presumably nitrate them slowly off the medication, continue the treatment, and then they transition into recovery, which may or may not need a provider. And so the problem that I see is diversion of the medication, people getting the medication without being abstinent. So the medication is supporting continued drug use of method, you know, me, uh, uh, method, uh, methamphetamine, marijuana, alcohol, cocaine, uh, or the medication is being, you know, uh, used inappropriately. So it's being injected so that maybe it's affecting other receptor sites, uh, just not the mu receptor that, that the heroin high comes from. And so what I see is a lot of times now uh, a problem that now we're in because now Suboxone is the number one illicit drug on the streets. Yeah. And so yeah. pro programs like mine that offer quality care, 
true evidence-based model of care, true treatment planning, where you look at all the interventions that are needed when it comes to education, employment, housing, transportation, medication, true counseling, evidence-based counseling. Our programs, you might see shrink, you know, but then other dock in the box, you know, pay a monthly fee, get your medication, whether you're getting regular counseling or not, are growing. And I think that's the second pill mill. Uh, and I wish uh, in the midst of everything else, and I've been talking, beating this drum for a while, I, I really wish uh, North Carolina would look at that and really stop the flow of Suboxone diversion onto the streets by these, you know, predatory doctors, predatory providers. Yeah, well, I've, I have heard it said that, you know, Suboxone is being prescribed, like you said, for for uh, for use that doesn't really have evidence to back it up, like cocaine and meth and stuff like that, where it, and then those people are diverting it to get money for their other uh, their other addictions. So. You have to have an opiate use disorder to get Suboxone. It can't be used for anything else. And, but the problem is when you come with them an opiate use disorder and you get Suboxone, yeah, they stop using opiates. But if they're still, if they're going to die from methamphetamine, it, you're not providing good care. It's unethical yeah. care. And it's really making, we, I think we're running into, like we had in the 90s, a whole stimulant epidemic. And if you look at the, the webinars and the credit credential programs that are coming out, I think you're going to have a horrible stimulant crisis on the back of this opiate crisis. Yeah, you, you mentioned that in our previous podcast. And, and have, have you seen an uptick in that? And, and also, I guess, throw in there maybe how has the STOP Act and some of those things, has it stemmed the tide of opiate misuse and in substance abuse disorder, I mean, substance use disorder and all that. And then has there been a, re, you know, a, a, I guess a, a response in the other way and seeing the stimulant up to well, Initially, you're absolutely right. The stop did put some real uh, constraints on the source of opiates inside the country. And so you had, you saw some illicit fentanyl being created now. And now we're seeing on the back of, of trucks and vans, little machines, no bigger than my arm, little machines creating illicit fentanyl and putting it on the streets. Extremely dangerous. Um, kind of like the old bathtub meth. Now we're seeing fentanyl machines. Um, but but the problem that I, I'm seeing is we are seeing larger numbers of methamphetamine coming through our doors, but we don't have the funding. Because of an opioid crisis, Funding has been specifically geared and targeted towards opiate use disorder, not towards methamphetamine and not towards alcohol or other drugs. And so while you're seeing horrible methamphetamine problems, uh, we have no funding for those who are uninsured. Yeah. So you're, you're really in a bad, people are using what is a substitution phenomenon. The brain is being hit the same area, whether it's opiates with an opioid receptor site or a stimulant receptor site. But just like you could be addicted to gambling, it's down there in that kind of lizard part of that brain, that earlier part of the brain called the mesolimbic area. And so what's happening is that there's a substitution phenomenon. If I can't get my heroin, I'm using other drugs and people do perceive a, some relief from their withdrawal. It may be very modest, but there are there are transitioning over and substituting with extremely powerful stimulants, like norfentanil, fentanyl, 
you know, um, and then the stimulants, of course, are very powerful stimulants uh, that we're seeing out there as well, not just uh, the illicit uh, opiates. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's let's go to a bigger picture. What what is the antidote for all this? I mean, is it more social connection? Is it meaningful jobs? Is it you know what, you know stable families? I mean, what what do we do to, to get- is there a D all of the above? <laughs> I guess I guess that was I was getting to that. Yeah, there's probably probably everything. So yeah, when you do a person centered plan. Um, and I know Andrew, and I know Andrew is very family oriented. I know he's very active. He likes to be on his bike, and he's always going, going, going with his kids. Some people may not have children, and some people may not be active. Some people may. So you've got to really do a person centered plan to, because you know what I call spirituality, meaning and purpose in your life, and it doesn't mean any traditional sense of Christianity or Buddhism or religious. It just means what gives you meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And that should be the core of our biopsychosocial model, you know, at the core of this. Because if you don't have meaning and purpose at the core of the biopsychosocial model, nothing's going to move forward. You'll have no motivation to change. And so while you have somebody who is coming through my door at 65 who really wants to reconnect to a granddaughter that she can't see because of ad- years of addiction, you might also have somebody like Andrew comes through and wants to connect with what he used to do that gave him pleasure. So employment, yes. Education, yes. Family, yes. Recovery community, yes. Physical health and wellness, yes. You know, emotional, psychological health and wellness, yes. But it has to be very person-centered. It, one one template does not fit all. And so, and that's why when we do our assessments and that's why we guide our treatment planning, it has to be what that person needs. Obviously, basic necessities. Do you have food? Do you have do you have primary medical care? Do you have housing? You have a roof over your head. With a, is it safe? You know, do you have fear? So uh, some of this, uh, the the screening that we're doing, social determinants of health that everyone knows about now, is key to creating a really good treatment plan, as well as all those other screening tools about anxiety and trauma. We know a lot of things come together to form addiction. Some of it's genetics, some of it's early childhood trauma, some of it's coping with homelessness, some of it's going to be coping with mental illness. And so we try to really do a real wraparound program at the assessment phase, as well as the ongoing treatment phase. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's switch gears again and and get into, uh, you know, your big news. I mean, you shared with me, I don't know if you want to share with the with the audience about the big change in your life. Yeah, I'm 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 sleep deprived. <laughs> I am tomorrow the ten weeks old father of a ten week old baby girl, Adeline Grace Richardson, and I will tell you. Uh, and I've been very open about my own recovery. I got clean and sober July fourteenth, nineteen ninety eight, and I'm also a cancer survivor. Thank goodness, Wake Forest Baptist uh, Cancer Center was there. I had a very aggressive uh, lymphoma in 2010, which was the 12th year of my recovery. So um, after a sufficient period of time uh, trying to, you know, in remission from cancer, wanting to make sure it wasn't going to come back with those five years, I got my North Carolina state license, started my own agency. Now we have four treatment centers, two pharmacies, including a retail pharmacy, housing programs, prevention program. And uh, and now I have a daughter. So recovery really has delivered everything that drugs and alcohol promised my life. And she is absolutely, if you 
I'm open on Facebook, uh, Dr. Corey Richardson, Corey Richardson in Hickory, North Carolina. I am so proud of my daughter. Uh, she is absolutely, I don't know how I, I, I had anything to do with such a beautiful daughter. And it was by an anonymous donor. So the you know, we're talking about evidence-based practice, true science, uh, anonymous donor, an amazing surrogate to put me as a parent on a birth certificate as the only parent. So I'm very blessed. And it's all because of recovery. I have to be honest with you, Andrew. And that's really what we try to deliver. And that's why I hope all the agencies in recovery, there's some really solid lived experience, whether you have a counselor, whether you have a licensed provider, or whether you have a doctor. Having lived lived experience in recovery is, uh, is, I think, essential on some level to deliver this type of care and have people that can deliver that. It's peer supports. North Carolina now certifies peer supports through UNC Chapel Hill. It's essential. Um, and I always say, it, can you imagine teaching somebody to play golf if you never swung a club before? If you read about it in a book and now you're going to bring that book out and talk to somebody because you took a test about golf. And uh, and so at least for us, what I do think it's really essential to dive into finding some lived experience that can help you deliver these evidence based models of care. Lived experience alone, I do not think is enough. I think you have to be a clinician. I think you should have that kind of background to deliver evidence based model the best of your ability. But I think lived experience allows us to really deliver that model in a non judgmental kind of like, you know, uh, way that really connects with people. There's a therapeutic alliance when I tell people on assessment, I'm in recovery also, where all of a sudden they take a big <sighs> deep breath and go, okay, you understand. And yeah. you feel judged. And and uh, and so, and if you're not, if you're a clinician watching this or listening to this and you're not in recovery, there are, op- there are opportunities to find lived experience that can still help you connect with the people that you're working on. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you do provide such a great success uh, uh, model for for recovery, and and just so you know how people can really find and, and and work their way up, back up Maslow's hierarchy, you know, and get to the get to that top of the pyramid, so you can give back. And it seems like you're you know you're being a parent is certainly giving back and and having that additional meaning and purpose added, and and, and a new a, a new reason to to achieve and and to, to thrive it's the best and kind of sleepless, sleeplessness I've I've ever experienced. I tell yeah. you, and every parent knows it. But to be a parent in full recovery, absolutely amazing. Uh, I every sleepless moment, every tired day is a blessing, and so yeah. I'm really, really, I'm really happy. Well, and I think you know, all timing is perfect too. We learn our lessons as we go through life, and we learn struggle and we learn how to overcome and be resilient and and and, and learn you know the instant gratification uh prevents uh some future uh successes and we we need to learn how to uh really you know invest and sacrifice um and and put in the work to get where we want to and 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 i think that that's just such a great message and your your life story is a great story i've i've had I've been the host of a couple of the FASD uh, webinars, and some of the presenters have that lived experience. You know, they were mothers of, uh, of children with FASD and, and turned their lives around and became counselors to, to prevent it from happening to others. So, you know, it's just 
great story and I love I love talking with uh, uh, with you and, and I can see it on your smile and in the you know, energy that you bring to it that, that it's, you know you're, you're, you found your life calling and, and doing great for the, the world out here so we appreciate it um, and you know again we have a program a live program next week you can find out about it at northwestnet.org and we have a lot of pre-recorded lectures and modules for opiate opioid uh, use disorder um, that you can find there as well and, and Dr. I'll send you the link for the Tillis forum it's a very long forum it's a two-hour forum but for those people who are trying to find ways to get these newer interventions in their own agency their own behavioral health agencies uh, whether it's housing how to connect with lead how to start a lead in your own agency in your own county um, they might really find some interest there uh, and also we we also touch on a couple of federal funds that we participate with as well as our project Lazarus prevention programs that we're doing in the Hispanic outreach program so I would like uh, to, to give you that link if anybody wants to to connect there and get some real practical information about how to add these interventions. That's great. Yeah, I'll put the link in the uh, in the show notes for the for the podcast link. So people can look at that there. Um, well, uh, Corey Richardson, I, always a pleasure and I appreciate your time and uh, get to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to talking to you soon. All right, man. Bye bye.